and it's so odd sitting in the sanctuary looking into a camera and there's nobody in the chairs. But thank God we have such great technology that I can come into your living room during this time of crisis, your place of business, maybe your automobile. I hope you're not driving while watching. But uh, what a great, great uh, opportunity to take advantage of the media that God has given us. And I want you to know, first of all, how much I appreciate the giving. It's touched me because every day uh, tithes and offerings have been coming in. And um, I am shown not who gave what, but how much came in. And it, it just touches me because I know you're in a crisis and you're having to cast your cares upon the Lord. And this is a time of trial for you as well. So thank you. Because listen, you're giving. Uh, also enables us to keep giving to missions. We, we are not going to not give to missions. And in giving to missions, you know, like places like Haiti, where we have an incredible missions work under uh, Jay Threadgill, who feeds literally a few thousand children every day because of your giving. And uh, they have been hit by this coronavirus plague just like us, but they don't have the sanitary conditions. They don't have the medical uh, assistance that we do. And so it's so good to know that we are not going to let them down. So as your gifts come in, you're also enabling us to keep on giving to ministries like that. And uh, I so appreciate it. I'm missing you. I want to chime in with Tina there to say how much we're missing you. Uh, I can't wait for the announcement to come we can return to church. I mean, I think it's going to be packed. I think it's going to be uh, an incredible celebration. I'm looking forward to that time. And in the meantime, we are walking by faith and not by sight. And we are leaning on God's grace and on God's strength. And we know that he's going to get us to the other side of this valley because that's what he does. God carries us through the valley. We're not going to build a house in the valley we're not going to pitch tent in the valley. We're not going to sit down and mope in the valley. But we're going to walk through the valley to the other side. And I believe we're going to be stronger. I believe we're going to be purified. And listen, the Lord's going to get a great testimony out of the way he provided for his people in this time of trial. Well, we're in the book of Hebrews. We're not letting up. We're not going to let the devil stop us. Once again, before I begin, let me remind you that uh, God has made a way for us to begin March 30th on Christian Satellite Network. We're going to be launching in a whole new level, even in the midst of all of this, these trials and tumult and whatnot, we're going to be launching on CSN all over America in every time zone, every day in drive time traffic. We're going to be in the Pacific time zone, beaming into California at 5.30 in the evening. Uh, we're going to be in mountain time zone at 6.30, central time zone, 7.30, and eastern time zone, 8.30. And those are all primo time slots on radio, literally turning point. We're going to be reaching the United States of America two and a half hours a week all over this land with the Word of God. We have been called to minister the Word of God. My first priority is you. But as God blesses here, you and me together, 
we're going to reach the entire United States. And what a time to bring a word of hope, uh, to bring the word of God as it is to people as they are who are struggling and need to hear some encouragement. We're going to be there starting Monday, Monday evening, March 30th. So praise God for that. Now, tonight we're getting into Hebrews 8. We're going to cover Hebrews 8. What a great time to get into the Word of God in a time of crisis like this. I love the Word of God. It, is, it strengthens me. It encourages me, and it builds my faith. So grab your Bibles, and let's open to Hebrews 8. And let me just do a little recap quickly. Last time we ended with looking at Jesus as our far better great high priest who does not need to offer up daily sacrifices for the sins of the people, Because he has once for all, I love those three words, offered up his own shed blood as God's sacrificial lamb. He doesn't have to do it again. He did it once for all. And when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it meant that the blood he shed was all that was needed to seal God's new covenant. The new covenant that we stand in was penned in the ink of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as we begin chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews sums up what his message has been so far. He says, you want to know what we've been saying for seven chapters now? Let's sum it up. He says in verse 1, chapter 8, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated, and that means who sat down. That's a better translation. A high priest who sat down forever, for good, never to be moved again, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now we're being told right there that there is a tabernacle, there is a sanctuary in heaven that has been built by God and Jesus dwells there And that is where he makes intercession for us. So we have a high priest who is eternal, whose sacrifice need not be repeated, who can save us to the uttermost, as some like to say, he saved us from the guttermost to the uttermost, and who is serving as our great high priest in the heavenly sanctuary made by God, not man. And that is where he lives to intercede for you and me. It's such a comfort to know that Jesus Christ is right now praying your name. He's praying for your family. He's praying over you. He's praying over me. He's praying over our church, over every believer in the world. Jesus is making intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I can't think of anybody who I'd rather have praying for me than Jesus. So now the writer continues with comparing Jesus to the Old Testament priests. Now remember, he's writing primarily to Jewish people who were raised in Moses, raised in the Levitical priesthood, raised in the tabernacle and then in the temple where God dwelt. He dwelt in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and he dwelt in the temple once the temple was built. They were raised in a Old Testament system that was as deeply embedded in them as anything could be. It was just woven into their DNA. So the writer is very carefully over and over again, starting at chapter one forward, 
showing the difference between Jesus and the old covenant. He's saying Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the old covenant. His blood is better than the old covenant blood. Better, 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 better is the message of Hebrews. And he's very delicately and very skillfully carrying them along to show them, look, there is a better that is here. His name is Jesus. He's better than all that you were raised in as Old Testament Jewish people. So in verse 3, he's comparing now the Levitical priests, the Aaronic, those that came up under Aaron, he's comparing them to Jesus. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, capital O, Jesus, also have something to offer. You see, while the earthly priesthood under Aaron and the Levites regularly offer the various sacrifices directed by Moses. You know, they constantly sacrificed the animals. Um, they, they observed all the feasts, all the rituals, all that Moses had directed them to do. They always brought something that they offered to God that he had ordered. But Jesus offered a far better sacrifice than they did, better than the blood of lambs and goats. His own body and blood on the cross. So he's saying, Jesus' body and blood given on the cross is better, all caps, than anything the Old Testament priests offered to God. Then next, the writer of Hebrews says that if Jesus had still been there in the time that he was writing, he would not have been able to be a priest because the current priests were still offering the Old Testament sacrifices, which Jesus, by his death and resurrection, had made obsolete. So listen to verse 4. He says, For if he, that is Jesus, were on earth still, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. He could not have done that, because he offered the once-for-all sacrifice. So if Jesus had been on the earth when the writer of Hebrews was writing, he could not have been a priest like they were because they were still doing Old Testament stuff. But Jesus had already offered his body and blood. That's the message. And notice he sa- what he says next in verse 5. These priests, the Old Testament priests, serve the copy and the shadow of of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, that is, God said to Moses, see that you make all things, you build the tabernacle to the pattern shown you on the mountain. God had told Moses, you be sure, Moses, that you build the tabernacle precisely the way I laid it out for you. But even so, the writer of Hebrews uses two words. He says they are a copy and they are a shadow. The Old Testament priests were only ministers of what was a copy and a shadow or a type of the better thing that was to come, and that better thing was Jesus. The writer says that the priests of his day 
We're operating under the Old Testament system, which was only a shadow of the real thing, a reflection, a type of the real thing. When Moses built the tabernacle, God gave him extremely specific instructions. It's really kind of hard to read because it was so specific, you kind of phase out as you're reading it because it was really detailed. But that's because God was saying, I'm giving you a copy, I'm giving you a shadow, I'm giving you a type of what is actually in heaven. The the tabernacle was a type of the real sanctuary in heaven, a copy, a shadow. Now, we're going to see much more detail on the tabernacle when we start chapter 9 next time. But keep in mind those words, copy and shadow. Those are very important. The Old Testament priesthood, the tabernacle, the feasts, the rituals were only copies and shadows and types of the real things that really do exist in heaven. Let me give you an example. I was riding my bicycle this week, and thank God the sun came out, and I loved it. And I was going down a bike trail, and all of a sudden, this big shadow passed over me and by me. And I saw the shadow, and I knew that it was the shadow of a bird. It was a bird's shadow. And so I looked up, and I looked right up at, up in the sky, this huge hawk. And it made me think of what he's saying here. See, the shadow was not the hawk. The shadow proved the existence of the hawk testified to the existence of the hawk. It was the shape of the hawk, but it was not the actual hawk. And what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that when Moses built the tabernacle, it was only a shadow that testified of the real thing that is up there. I looked up and saw the hawk. Then I understood the shadow. Now I look up and I see Jesus in heaven making intercession for us. And the Bible tells me there is a sanctuary up there And so therefore, when I look at the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple, then I know that was the shadow of the real thing. It testified of the existence of the real thing. So what we need to walk away with is this, that there is in heaven a sanctuary that God has built with his own hands. No man has built it. God built it. Jesus is in that sanctuary. And there is our great high priest. He offers up spiritual sacrifices for you and me. Intercession, prayer, calling out to God on our behalf, spiritual sacrifices, forgiving us for our sins, washing our sins away. Every high priest was called of God to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God on behalf of those that he represented. Jesus Christ represents his church, his body. And the real thing, the real tabernacle and the real temple are in heaven. I don't know what they look like. I just know that what was on earth was a type and a shadow of the real thing, a copy. So the real tabernacle and the ultimate high priest are in heaven right now. So again, Hebrews is showing us Jesus is a better priest in a better sanctuary, overseeing a better covenant. So right there in your living room, wherever you are, just say the word better, because that's what Hebrews is all about. Jesus is better in every sense of the word than anything they had in the Old Testament. And so next, the writer of Hebrews once again uses the word better to describe 
the better covenant. Verse 6, but now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. There's that word, established on better promises. There's the word again, better covenant, better promises, better blood, better covenant, better way. I mean, it's all better. And here is where Hebrews 8 really begins to get exciting because the writer is now going to talk to us about the incredible ways God's new covenant is better under Jesus. So beginning in verse 7, he says, If that first covenant that came under Moses had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. If the first covenant had saved people, if the first covenant had covered the sins of the people and done everything that God needed to be done to satisfy his need for justice, he would have not have needed a second covenant. But the first covenant was not faultless. It failed. And I'm going to talk to you about how in just a moment. He says in verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming. Now he's quoting Jeremiah here. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see, the old covenant, which God had brought through Moses, had anchored the Jewish people uh, for more than 1,200 years. The old covenant was the way they related to God, through priests, through the rituals, through the sacrifices, that's the way they had related to God. But even while it was still in effect, God moved on the prophet Jeremiah and he said, a better covenant is coming because the first covenant has not worked. It's failed. It has not saved men. It has not changed men. So what kind of covenant would it be? And what made it a better covenant? Well, verses 9 and 10 in chapter 8 of Hebrews the writer is going to continue to quote Jeremiah and tell us how it's a better covenant. So let's begin in verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. This is the exodus out of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Now, the fact that they didn't continue in the covenant that God made through Moses, the Ten Commandments, the law, that they did not continue in it is not news to anybody that's read the Bible. Over and over again in the wilderness, they failed God. They complained. They griped. They moaned. They said, you know, we were better off in Egypt. They vexed God with unbelief. They did not accept the promises of God. They never really trusted God, but they failed over and over again. So here you had this beautiful covenant, these beautiful commandments. There wasn't anything wrong with the commandments. They revealed the righteous requirements of God, but they were weak. They failed in that men could not keep them. And that's the whole point of what the writer is saying. God had said, through the Ten Commandments, which, which summarized the first covenant, God had said, here's my Ten Commandments. Here's what I require. If you will do this and do it perfectly, you will achieve righteousness. And that was it. 
If you want to be righteous, do the commandments. But the problem was nobody could do it. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Nobody has ever been able to do it except one man, the man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments, the law of God. He was without sin. He was perfectly righteous. And when you place your faith on, in him, then his righteousness is imputed to you. And that is an incredible, incredible blessing. But the writer is saying, God gave the Ten Commandments, but nobody could do it. Because of our sinful natures, everybody failed. And that's why there had to be a second covenant, the new covenant, the New Testament. Because the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant failed. We couldn't do it. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, here's the fact. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Greek language there is in the present tense, the present active tense. And what that means is it is really saying all have sinned and are continually falling short of the glory of God any given day. None of us perfectly obeys the commandments of God. The good news is God sees us through the blood and not our own imperfections. But listen to the way Paul describes the real condition of men, and he's telling us why there had to be a second covenant, because we couldn't live up to the first covenant, the old covenant. Here's why. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 10, and believe me, what I'm about to read is not encouraging. It's tough because he's telling us the truth about human nature. Here's the truth about you and me without Jesus Christ. As the scriptures say, no one is good. No one in all the world is innocent. Verse 11, Romans 3. No one has ever really followed God's path or even wanted to. Everyone has turned away. All have gone wrong. No one anywhere has kept on doing what is right. Not one. Listen to all those no one every, listen, no one, no one, everyone, all, no one, not one. I think that pretty well covers everybody. Nobody in the human race has ever obeyed the commandments of God because we have Adam's fallen nature. And then he goes on talking about the way we talk. He says in Romans 3, verse 13, their talk is foul and filthy, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are loaded with lies. Everything they say has in it the sting and poison of deadly snakes. Wow, this is rough stuff. Verse 14, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And then verse 15, they're quick to kill. Hating anyone who disagrees with them. Well, that sounds like our day today, hating anybody that disagrees with you. Verse 16, wherever they go, they leave misery and trouble behind them. You know, I love walking with Jesus because when you walk with Jesus, you leave behind you a blessing. Wherever you've been, you leave behind you a legacy of blessing, but not so with the wicked. He says here, the wicked, those that don't know God, leave behind them misery and and trouble. Verse 17, they have never known what it is to feel secure or to enjoy God's blessing. Verse 18, they care nothing about God. They don't even care what he thinks of them. And you know, as I read these and I look at our culture right now, I can see every one of these verses 
played out in front of me as I watch the news and I listen to the foul speech and I see the hatred and I see the disunity and I see the murder either by tongue or by action. And I say, the Bible tells the truth about man. The Bible tells the truth about fallen man. There's that old book, I'm okay, you're okay. The Bible doesn't agree with that. The Bible says you're not okay and I'm not okay. We're sinners and we need a savior. And without a savior, we will perish in our sins. So what is the verdict? Paul writes that all the world is guilty before God, Romans 3, verse 19. So because of our inescapable, undeniable proclivity for sin, the law could not save anyone because everybody broke it. So where does that leave us? What to do? Well, God's answer was a brand new covenant. And this new covenant would do what the old covenant could never do. Let's read about it in Hebrews 8, verse 10. For this is the covenant. Now, this is Jeremiah still speaking, being quoted by the writer of Hebrews. He's quoting Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wow. Now let me tell you what he's saying there. The new covenant promises that something's going to happen on the inside of us. See, the old covenant just told us how to behave. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and so on and so forth down through the commandments. Don't do it. Just don't do these things. But we couldn't obey because the inside of us wasn't changed. But now, he says, the new covenant is going to bring an inside change, an inner transformation. We will want to do, he says, what is right. We will want to do what is right. The old covenant said, do this, don't do that. But the fallen nature remained untouched. But in the new covenant, we've got a promise of inner transformation. Our very nature is changed. And this is what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're going to have to be born again. If you're not born twice, Nicodemus, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. And folks, now we're getting right down to the crux and the, the, the core matter of Christianity. We had to be changed on the inside. We had to experience an inner transformation. Without it, we would have no desire to obey God. We would, have, we would have that old fallen nature of Adam that only wants to sin. We had to have a heart operation. We had to have essentially a spiritual heart transplant. And that is what the new covenant promised. That's what Jeremiah is saying. I'm going to put my law my will, my ways in your heart. Where in the old covenant, I engraved my will on stones. And Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the stone tablets. And he said, here's God's will. But the new covenant, God says, no, I'm not gonna write my law on a stone. I'm gonna write it on your heart. I'm gonna write it on your heart by the finger of God. I'm gonna change you. I'm gonna rearrange you. I'm going to transform you. And this is the good news about the new covenant. This is why it's better, so much better. 
I mean, infinitely better. Paul wrote, when somebody becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. See, a lot of people, and maybe even you, you're watching and you're not used to watching church uh, messages, religious uh, messages or sermons. But let me tell you, some people think to become a Christian means that I have to take on a rule book, that I'm going to have to obey certain things. You know, don't party, don't, don't fornicate, don't adulterate, don't this, don't that. And there's no way I'm going to be able to do it. But see, you've got it wrong. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is an inside job. Christianity is a transformation on the inside. Christianity is when Jesus comes to live inside of you and gives you a brand new nature so that you are no longer just having to do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. But no, he changes your want to do. He changes your desires. He changes the inner motivations of your heart. He, he does a genuine heart transplant. When a person turns to Jesus, oh, I didn't, finish, I didn't finish the verse. When somebody becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. And that's the truth. You see, I was saved in jail. I was saved in the juvenile detention center as a 16-year-old, just wiped out, ruined teenager in there on a drug charge. I was out of high school, had no idea what I was going to do with my life, in all kinds of trouble, in juvenile home for a felony. And I heard this gospel. And Jeff Wickwire asked Jesus into his heart. I'd never heard it before. And you know what? I didn't change me. He changed me. I didn't take on a New Year's resolution or turn over a new leaf or go through some kind of rehabilitation. Oh, no. I went through transformation, and Jesus changed me. And he can change you right where you are. What a great time to receive Christ right where you are right now. If you don't know him, then I want you to listen to the promise of the new covenant, that whoever believes on him shall be saved. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe and acknowledge the atoning death that he submitted to on your behalf, he will send the Spirit of God to live inside of you and he'll give you a brand new heart. Why not do it during this incredible national crisis? Let God give you a brand new beginning. You see, when you believe on him, immediately the Holy Spirit is sent to live inside of you. And when the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you, you are transformed. You receive new life and a brand new nature that longs to please God. Now, that's the very first promise of the new covenant the writer of Hebrews speaks of. It's not just a matter of being under the harsh whip of the law with its threats of punishment and of hell, but our very nature is changed True salvation, folks, is an inside job. And better yet, our salvation does not depend on our own actions. Thank God. You see, Christianity is not a meritorious religion. See, it is not based on how well we perform, how well we jump through certain religious hoops. That's not what it is. It's all by God's grace. It is all a gift of God. Like if I walked up to you right now, and I handed you a $20 bill. 
And I said, here, I want you to have this. Now, if you were to say to me at that very moment, well, Jeff, let me give you something for this $20. What, what do you want me to do? What do I need to do to earn this? And I said to you, I don't want you to earn it. Because if you earn it, it's no longer a gift. And I just want to give it to you. I want to give it to you with no strings attached, and then I'm just going to walk away. I'm giving it to you. And you accepted it. You just accepted a gift. Salvation is the same way. We want to say to God, how can I earn this, Lord? What hoops do I need to jump through? What, what merit do I need to earn? What, what do I need to do to deserve this? And then God says nothing. By grace, you are saved through faith. Not by your own good works. It is the gift of God. That is why the new covenant is the better covenant. Those Old Testament people were always trying to jump through all the hoops. Ten of them. All the Ten Commandments. Jumping through all the ten hoops. And they never could. But now there's no hoops to jump through. Jesus jumped through all the hoops for us. So now all we got to do is say, Jesus, I place my faith in you. And when you do... God says, because Jesus jumped through the hoops, I'm now going to impute to you that you did the same thing, though you didn't. And God attributes to us and puts to our account what Jesus did. Jesus jumped through all 10 hoops perfectly. And then God looks at us when we accept his son, and God says, now you did too, because he did, you did. And that's the way I'm going to view you forever. Thank God for the new covenant. It's a better covenant based on better blood, better promises, and a better high priest. The writer continues to describe the results of the new covenant as we come to a close now. He says, here's what the new covenant is going to, to bring. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now here's what he's saying, verse 11 is talking directly to those who have partaken of the blessings of the new covenant by turning to Christ. And he's saying, all of those shall know me. He's speaking about those who have experienced forgiveness at the foot of the cross, who have asked God to forgive you through Christ. He says, all of you, all of those will personally know me. Then verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's talking about those that come to Christ. Let me read it again. What a beautiful verse. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. How? Their sins and all their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You know, God has chosen to have amnesia when it comes to our sins. God says, not only do I forgive them, I'm not going to remember them. You know, it's the devil that wants to remind us of our sins. And he wants us thinking about things we've done wrong. But God says, don't do that. Be like me. I have forgiven you. And as I have forgiven you, I don't remember your sins anymore. I've removed them. I've got amnesia. I don't remember what you said. I don't remember what you did. I don't remember where you went. I don't remember it. Because you came to me and asked me to forgive you through Jesus' blood. I don't remember it. I've got amnesia. And I've chosen to have it. So this verse, the promise that he'll wash our sins away, 
is only true for those who have placed their faith in Christ. For those who do come to Christ, you will no longer have to describe or explain God to them, this verse says. All will know. You're never going to have to say to your neighbor again, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. You're not going to have to say to anybody who has come to Christ, let me describe God to you. Let me explain God. But if you're forgiven in Jesus, you already know God. You won't have to have him explain to you because you will personally know him. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. What a wonderful thing that when you come to Christ, you are immediately brought into relationship with God and you know him. And you look up and you call him Father. He's no longer some distant God surrounded by thunder and lightning with a furrowed brow and steam coming out of his ears and, you know, mad at you about every single thing. No, no, no. He's your Father. And you're not going to have to tell one another, those of you that have come to Christ, let me explain the Lord to you. No, because you'll know him personally. The writer closes out chapter 8 with a stunning statement, particularly to the Jewish people to whom he was writing. And this is the last verse in the chapter. In that he, God says, so God says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Put bluntly, the old covenant that the Jews have been raised in, as well as their ancestors and all their distant ancestors for 1,200 years. You know how long that is? 1,200 years they walked in the Mosaic system. But now they're being told it's all obsolete. It's all gone. Jesus has replaced it. No more sacrifice of animals was needed because Jesus shed his blood once for all. No more Levitical priesthood was needed because now we've got a once-for-all great high priest in the tabernacle in heaven making intercession for us, Jesus Christ, God's Son. For the Jews that heard this, it was like you couldn't have told them anything more profound, more shattering, more moving than this. Everything you were raised in is now obsolete. Look to Jesus the author and finisher of your faith. He's replaced it all. What a great chapter. My prayer for you, dear friend, is that there in your home, I love you, we love you. I so miss meeting with you. I'm looking forward to doing so again soon. My prayer for you is that God will keep you, cover you, comfort you, fill you with his peace, provide for you, come through for you, assure you of his care and that you will stay in the word and stay in prayer. Stay with us. Again, thank you for your giving. And uh, I want to just also say to those that might not be sure about your walk with Christ, what a great time to come to him right now, right where you are, this very moment. Maybe you're a backslider. Maybe before this plague hit America, you know you weren't walking the way you should. And you gotten away from him and out of church, but now you're rethinking all of that. Boy, I need to really draw close to Christ. I pray that you do. You can do it right where you are. Just look up and say, Jesus, 
you're a better Savior with better blood, a better sacrifice, a better covenant. Forgive me and come into my heart. Fill me with your spirit and help me to get back in the epicenter of the will of God. And right then, he will do it. God bless you until Sunday when we will meet again. Amen.